Good evening, guys and gals. Welcome back to another episode of the Constructive Liberty Podcast. Tonight, I have the pleasure, the honor of having Richard, forgive me if I don't say this right, is it Friesen? Friesen, very good, perfect. Friesen, awesome. Um, He is the founder of the Mind Muscles Academy. I already like the sound of that. And the creator and developer of the innovative and exclusive Mind Muscles training process that turns the psychology of money and wealth on its head. Richard works with financial professionals, independent traders, business leaders, and entrepreneurs of all type who want to expand their mental game to make more consistent profits. And if that doesn't sound like something that we all are striving for, then we might as well just call it a day. Richard, (laughs) welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ken. It's so good to be here. And our earlier chat before we started, finding out we both have Mennonite backgrounds, (laughs) I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, that's awesome. It, I don't run into a whole lot of people, especially, you know, getting into the podcast world and talking with different business mm-hmm. leaders and and trying to, you know, personal development and all that. You don't find a whole lot of people that come from that background. So it's always fun to make that connection. Indeed. Yeah. So tell, give us a little bit of your background. Kind of tell us how you went from maybe growing up as a little Mennonite boy to becoming who you are today, helping, helping leaders or helping people. How did you put that, um, flip their, flip their money mindset on its head? Well, one of the things about, excuse me, one of the things about growing up in a very conservative evangelical religious background is that it's so imprinted and so deep that life is bigger than just, you know, what I'm doing in the moment or what I want or what I'm feeling. So even as my very narrow religious views expanded, what didn't expand was was how I fit into a larger context and what I can do and what I can contribute. Mm. So I took some, uh, a side, uh, kind of a side road, and went off to the financial world. And there I learned about investing, money, trading. And when I came back to coaching, what was fascinating was the internal conflicts. We have cultural conflicts between, you know, the the political and economic divide. We have conflicts around people who are really good-hearted and are more leftist, but who have all sorts of internal, they've internalized conflicts about money and wealth. And then we have people who grew up religious, who are good-hearted people who want to do the best for the Lord. And at the same time, they don't know what to do about money and success because, you know, they want the best for their families, as we just talked about a bit earlier, but they've internalized the culture and some, depending on how they grew up in their families, whether their, you know, dads were really tightwads or, or, uh, you know, never made much money or they grew up poor or middle class. All those things got embedded. And so what my invitation is to find rapport with money, meaning, and wealth. Mm, I like the sound of that. That's that's great. You you touched on something interesting there. You talked about the, the divide between maybe more of the leftist and <clears throat> conservative side and how it seems like we often want the same thing. Is the disconnect often in in how it appears that we go about it? Like, 
you know, we're both looking at the same, say the same picture for the world, but from different angles. And so it seems like we're, we're seeing different solutions. What's your thoughts on that? Did, did that make sense? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Have you just opened a can of worms <laughs> as they say? <laughs> well, you, you know, you don't mess around, do you? You just ask the really tough questions. <laughs> Go right into it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what we have is, uh, you know, on, on the deepest level, we have a very philosophic difference. If you look at the religious community, there's a God, there's morality, we've sinned, and our job is to follow the higher level, the higher calling, the higher level of morali- morality, and not so much, and let that be our biggest calling in life. Mm-hmm. So if we look at that, there's a bigger picture, and there's guardrails, and there's behavioral rules. If we look at the postmodernist philosophy, which you see in um gender, sexuality, uh, how we treat groups racially and that. Um, and it's been generally anti-religious, anti-church. It's been, uh, I don't know if it's anti-marriage, but certainly not supportive of marriage and, and roles and standard roles. And a lot of the rules and the cultural issues have been moved aside so that we can create this wonderful, beautiful uh, the world that we anticipate that are going to come out once we get rid of all these old restrictions. So there's a philosophic difference between having some constructive rules that have been around for a long time and creating a whole new set that will allow us to recreate society and recreate hum- humanity. So mm-hmm. there's the deepest philosophical difference at one part. Then what you talked about looking at things from different angles, and I would even take that further to say, we see wholly different things. (laughs) I have some very progressive Democrat leftist friends, and their world is so different from my more conservative or evangelical or Christian or political friends. I I mean, if an alien came and interviewed them separately, they would say, huh, well, these are two different worlds, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So what we have is a basic philosophic difference, and then we have a perception difference. And as a result, that creates a cultural conflict that, as you can see, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And then the biases get worse and worse, and it just becomes a downward spiral. Yeah. It, it seems like... And not not all cases across the board, but it seems like a lot of times for both sides, when you go deep, like go seven layers deep on what what they're really after with with what's behind the things that they do with with what's mm-hmm. behind the the agendas they push. Uh, it seems like a lot of times we want kind of the same things, the same. In in the end, we both want a peaceful world. A lot of times, not everybody, obviously Mm -hmm. we both want everybody to go along. Yeah. Let's just forget the fringes. Right. Absolutely. Is the difference and we're way off topic from, but we'll get back to that. Is (laughs) is the difference that some people 
approach it from a selfish viewpoint, like how I want it. And then maybe you have the religious side that tries to approach things from how God wants to see it. I think that's, that's one. There's so many different ways to divide things up. And I think that's certainly one of the more predominant ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once you start going down that path, it just gets farther and farther and farther apart. It seems like, but let's jump into the main topic of the show. <laughs> We're talking okay. about a conversation with money, which is the book that you wrote or a private conversation with money. Mm-hmm. What was it that sparked that book? And tell us a little bit of, you know, kind of the background of it and, and what, what we might expect reading that book. Mm-hmm. But- what I discovered uh, as a trader and on the floor was that our financial success and our rapport with money and wealth and meaning is part of a belief system that we have. So, for example, uh, well, I'll just tell the story. It was like April of 1995. I was a market maker, a floor trader on the Pacific Exchange. and it was the middle of the night and I woke up and I heard this voice and the voice said, Rich, you're only worth 200,000 a year. I looked around the room. My wife was sleeping beside me. There was nobody else there. So obviously the voice came from inside my head. It, it woke me up. So I got up, dressed, showered, showered, dressed, drove across the Golden Gate Bridge to the Pacific Exchange. And I got there so early, the doors were still locked. Finally, when they opened the doors, I went in, and and probably most young people don't understand what a pit's like, but it's this big million mass of people fighting for orders and stuff. And I always stood at the back. And I stood at the back, you know, philosophy major, uh, you know, looking at my values and very carefully picking out this and that. And what had happened was that voice that when I started trading on my own, the first year I made 125,000, then 150, 175, 200, and then 200,000. I was capped at 200,000. And that voice in the middle of the night said that that's all I was worth. So that inner belief was there. And I decided in that moment, I was done with that voice. So I went and stood in the best spot in the pit. Now, of course, the other traders came in, the market makers, every brokers came in, and the guy who always stood there kind of looked at me, what is Rich doing there? (laughs) I kept watching the clock, and just before the bell went off, he tapped me on the shoulder, you know, like, okay, boy, boy. (laughs) Step back. (laughs) Time to go. I didn't move. So... Uh, right away, you know, the whole pit went, oh, my God, and stood back because there was going to be a fight. The uh, The order book official said, you guys get in a fight, it's a $10,000 fine. So I held my ground. The uh, bell went off, and I traded option series. I was buying 50, sell you 20, buy 30. I just went berserk, and the pit thought I had gone crazy. Well, I had made enough money from that going on to start my own trading firm. And I hired other traders. About a third of them, like me, would just make good money. A third of them would do okay. Not great, but okay. And about a third of them just couldn't do it. So it occurred to me, what if they had a voice? What if they had a belief? What if they had an internal ceiling or limitation? So I brought in 
a hypnotherapist. And that happened to be my sister was newly minted out of hypnotherapy school. And she was very eager to, to do ply her trade. And we went into, I we probably don't have time to go into all of it, but every one of them had a belief system or a fear of being wealthy or not wanting to take on the responsibility. So they solved it by simply not making money. So that was my first start into the book, A Private Conversation with Money, that maybe not only do some traders, but maybe the rest of us have an internal limitation. And I know that I certainly as, you know, I broke that ceiling, but there were other ceilings that I I still can look at and say, well, that's still there. So the process mm-hmm. is how do we become aware of that and make a decision, an intentional decision, rather than just letting that ceiling be there in our subconscious. Yeah, it, it's interesting you you mentioned that, and the voice telling you you're only worth two hundred thousand. I've I've heard it over and over again that you tend to make. I mean, you tend to hit your ceiling. Like if you believe that that's what you're worth, mm-hmm. that's what you tend to make. Like you don't go above that, and you don't come down below it. It's the same with our with our you know bank account if if we have a comfort level at 5000 in savings we're going to have 5000 yep. in savings if we have a comfort yep. level at 50000 we're going to have 50000 it might go up a little yep. bit but pretty soon it comes back to that yeah, why well, is you know it, it's well known that lottery winners uh, most of them come back to their original net worth football players that have made millions don't have enough money to retire it's because Ooh. their mindset did not include themselves as a wealthy person. Yeah. How, what's, what's the way that we can shift that mindset? Like how, is there a strategy for that? Is there steps? Is it something that takes a professional coming in from the outside or are there things we can do to work on that on our own? Oh my goodness. The first one is awareness. You know, that voice in the middle of the night woke me up. I wasn't consciously creating it, but what if, Imagine what if you could locate all those voices. Now, to do that, you have, let me repeat that. To do that, if you can invite them into a safe conversation to say, what I do with my clients, they'll say, can I talk to that voice? Okay. And I'll tell that voice, we'll give it a name. And like, for example, my client this morning, we gave it the name Quick, the guy who just, boom, just made impulsive decisions that were destructive. So I said, may I talk to Quick? Okay. Hi, Quick. This is Rich. I want you to know that I believe you have a positive intent for Tom's life. And I believe that you came to him when he didn't have many other options. And Quick, you are there to help him be aggressive and make decisions and move forward. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And the, and the voice will come back through through Tom and will talk to me. And I'll have a conversation with it. And we'll find out what it's doing to protect Tom, what it's doing to make his life better. Now, it, it, the, usually what happens is that that voice came to him when he needed that voice and needed that reaction and he needed that skill and talent. But now that you're an adult, it's in the road. It's not productive all the time. So then we can start to talk. How can we deal with that voice? So rather than trying to use willpower or discipline or squish it, we incorporate it into our quiver of skills. Yeah. 
Hey, you guys in the comments, I can see that you're commenting over there and I appreciate that. If you're on watching on Facebook, go to streamyard.com forward slash Facebook and it will enable you to, or you'll, there, you'll have a little toggle there that you can allow us to see who's commenting because all I see is Facebook users. So I appreciate you joining us live. But I'm reading a book called Atomic Habits. Ah. I don't know if you can see it. Fantastic yes. book. He talks about Fantastic book. building positive habits, you know, doing mm-hmm. positive things that lead toward the life you want. But it's it's really hard to do the right thing over and over and over again. The little things, the things that mm-hmm. don't seem to make any difference in the moment, but they lead towards big results. The same is with the negative habits. But mm-hmm. why is it so hard to change a bad habit, especially with money? Yeah. Okay. S- say like Tom, that when he grew up and he had a bunch of abusive brothers and he had to make quick decisions, he had to be tough, he had to punch first, he had to win in order to feel safe in his world, right? So yeah. that's a context, that whole context. Now he's trading. And all of a sudden, he's feeling threatened for whatever reason, or he loses a couple of trades. That whole context comes back. Now, when you're in that context, nothing else in the world exists. So it's like, how do you, how do you have agency? How do you be able to make intentional decisions when, in fact, within that context, that's all that there is? So what we do, and this is uh, in the book, Atomic Habits, does has a lot of great stuff in it, is that we have something called a, a mind metric that we take and break down a whole bunch of little behaviors and then we color them so that every day you color red, yellow, or green how you did on them so we can see visually. Uh, with some people, when they're in the process of making decisions, I will be there with them on Zoom like we are now just talking. And I will continually invite them to their higher self out of a particular context into a different context where they can see where they are. They can see what drives decisions, but now they have an additional awareness. So we have what's called the golden keys. And the first is awareness. You can't change anything without awareness. The next is acceptance. Rather than beating ourselves up, for something we become aware of, <laughs> it doesn't help much. So we accept, oh, that's fascinating. I notice that whenever my wife looks at me cross-eyed or has kind of a critical tone, in, this is serious for Ray, you know, a critical tone in her voice, I'll go, oh, what can I do better? Oh, oh I screwed up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you know, so for I'm aware of when she has a critical tone in her voice. I'm aware that you know, from my background and from being a kid, I want to please everybody so they like me. So I still have that same contest. So it's awareness. And then next is agency. What do I want? How do I want to experience that? And all of a sudden, I have choices. I can either experience that as a naughty little boy, or I can say, hmm, let's find out what's going on with her. Let's have a conversation without guilt, without being defensive without needing her to change. So it's awareness, acceptance of what you're aware of, and then 
agency, the ability to apply meaning to that event. A lot of my clients assume that meaning comes with events. So she made me so mad. (laughs) Boy, he really pissed me off. (laughs) You know, but you can come to the point where you can say, oh, his face was scowling. His voice was loud. Huh. How do I want to experience that? And that is just transformational when you realize that you can create the experience that you want and that meaning is not attached to the event. Why is that so hard to do? Oh, when we're kids. I, I just got done with a week in the mountains with my grandkids, oh, ages two through 13. Oh, he made me so mad. It isn't fair. so you know when we're kids well when you're an infant you don't have any ability to add meaning add your own meaning to the event i mean there's the event and there's the meaning mom's holding me cuddling me or somebody's yelling at me or i'm cold so adding creating agency for your meeting is is a lifelong uh, process of learning because we don't, we're not born into it. Yeah. It's hard to change that mindset, but yeah, if we can, if we can. Okay. Can I stop you right there, Ken? Sure. Go for it. (laughs) It's hard to change the mindset. So what you're doing is you're setting yourself up right now for a task that has to be done. That's hard. And we're going to, we're going to push through it. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you if you're willing to do an experiment to say, let's go for it. Oh, it's going to feel so good when, and then finish the sentence. Mm. Try that. It's going to feel amazing when my mindset completely shifts and I don't fall into the mindset anymore. Of Yeah. How did that feel that. when you said that? That's a lot better. Oh, it's my great. gosh. Yes. <laughs> You're looking forward to something now. It's not something that's hard. You're looking forward to that new experience. Yeah. So congratulations. <laughs> It, it's interesting how, you know, in a in a conversation with someone else, I can I can take them through that step by step every time. Mm-hmm. But there's a mental block when we try to coach ourselves through something like that. And I'm not sure I'm still working through that. I'm not sure why that mm-hmm. is. Yeah, but, well, you, you, what you're talking about, that mental block is the context. And that context is something that came from when you're younger, something that you built when you were a teenager, whatever it is. Well, within that context, we're asking ourselves not to be in that context. Ah, but if somebody is there with you, like like if if I'm working with somebody and they're making a real-time decision or there's a trader or an entrepreneur who's negotiating a sale of something, when I'm with them, I constantly invite them to their higher selves, to their agency. And in that, so I'm providing a whole, I'm including their context, but I'm in, inviting them to a bigger context. Whereas if I'm a confession, deep dish pizza, I'm just going to have two slices. <laughs> no, I'll say, nope. <laughs> I'm going to just have two. I'm going to the Chicago deep dish pizza. Mm, just going to have two. Oh nope. my gosh! <laughs> Never so, stop it too. <laughs> yeah. So when I'm in that, oh my gosh, and all the meaning that pizza have, and all the memories of Chicago, and all that, and and for me, food is 
is nur- is emotional nourishment. So in that context, and I taste that pizza, can I then from my higher self say, oh, just two? <laughs> Whereas if somebody's with me saying, Rich, you want to be healthy, you want to do this, this is you're a strong person, you're a strong man, you're going to take care of yourself for your grandkids and your family. How many pieces of slicer pizza how many slices of pizza are you gonna have? Oh, I'm just having two. Yeah. So what you're talking about, Ken, is so important is that if you can have somebody there always inviting you to your higher self, and I think that's one of the big, big, powerful parts of religion, it's a continual invitation to your higher self, and especially in church and groups. Gosh, I remember going to church and prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. They separated the men and the women, and we held hands, and we prayed for each other, always inviting ourselves to our higher self. Let's. I want to rabbit trail just a little bit. I, I hear people talk about, you know, your higher self a lot. And coming from the background that you and I both do, that sounds a bit mystical or woo-woo. Or, or, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> yeah. You don't understand it. What do you mean when you talk about inviting someone to their higher self? Explain, go into that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think we talked a bit about it, and that is agency. To say who I am at my deepest core. I'm a child of God. I'm, I can stand tall on the earth. I am worthy. I deserve to be here as the foundation then what are my behaviors built upon that? And the higher self is able to both see our core identity, to see the world, to see without with minimal blinders what's going on around us, and then make a decision that is that is is helpful, that supports us, that hmm. that looks to the future. And so the higher self is ephemeral, but it's a it's a consciousness that takes that is able to take in a larger context, apply meaning and values, and then make a decision. So essentially, kind of the way it sounds like what I've described as when you get into a situation that maybe you are uncomfortable with or you freeze in normally or somebody attacks mm-hmm. you with something, you know, we tend to get emotional with that. I've often talked yeah. about taking yourself as if you were somebody up here watching it from a distance, mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. tell yourself or tell that person that's you down there, how to, how to walk through that situation that, that takes your emotions out of it so that you don't eat seven pieces of pizza. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, you're actually I, w- I would suggest it doesn't here. take the emotions out of it but allows you to experience the emotions and still make a decision from your higher self. Because as neuroscience tells us over and over again, that uh, we can't make decisions without emotions. Emotions are an integral part of how our brain works. And so it's an artificial construct to try to take emotions out of it. (laughs) But I think you can, I can experience the emotions. I can say, wow, that's fascinating. Like we have what's called our set scores, our sensations, emotions, and thoughts. And I'll have my clients set an alarm for depending on what they're doing, let's say every hour. And then we just do a survey. 
We're like, right now I'll do it. Oh, my stomach's a little tight. I'm talking a little fast and my, my throat's a little tight up here. Uh, my <laughs> shoulders are a little back. Okay. Now, what do I want? Okay, this feels better. So then I look at my emotions. I'm excited talking to you. I've, you've got me wound up. I'm thinking about things. <laughs> so I'm going really fast. <laughs> okay, what if I were to slow down a bit? What are the quality of my thoughts? Well, the thoughts are kind of, my my mouth is, is spewing the thoughts as fast as they come, so I don't feel any uh, conflict there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. That's great. <laughs> Sensations, emotions, thought. It's their set scores. <laughs> Yeah. Hmm. I'll have to, I'm excited to read that book. That's, that's going on my list. One of the things that you talk about though, um, in the, in the overview that I read is rapport with money. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you describe that a little bit? What, what that looks like, what rapport with money is, you know, a good rapport versus bad rapport and how sure. our culture affects that. Oh, sure. So we have good hearted people, um, all across the political spectrum that want to be good. And in their mind, if I make more, somebody else makes less. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a subtle one pie thing that comes from our families oftentimes where we had to fight for scraps because it wasn't enough to go around. So, so people have the one pie model buried in their head. Uh, on the left, we certainly see that one pie model. Um, I, you know, I get Twitter feeds from, Oh my God, the wealthy aren't paying enough, uh, you know, the rest of us have left has less less than we have, you know, on the more conservative side. Uh, we need to be small. We need don't want to take too much. We want to allow enough for everybody. So the question is then how do we develop rapport with money and our values? And so what I do is I reframe money. Uh, Thomas Sowell, an economist, a black economist, he's passed now, but about 20 years ago, maybe. I was listening to him on the radio and he says, money is a certificate of appreciation. And I went, whoa. Mm. So what my clients do is when they give money to somebody, they are giving them an appreciation for the services they receive. (laughs) On the other hand, if you can, you say, hey, I'm going to pay you rich to come on these podcasts because you're doing such a great job. I'll take (laughs) the money and say, oh, a certificate of appreciation from Ken. Now, you ready for the next step? Let's this do is it. Gonna, this might, your brains might explode. All right. The more certificates of appreciation you collect, the more value you have delivered to the world. Mm. Now, needless to say, Martin Luther King, uh, uh, Mother Teresa, you know, dozens of people make huge contributions to the world that has nothing to do with money. But we all can't do everything. So for those of us who go into the commercial world, how much value can I deliver to others and get certificates of appreciation back? Hmm. Now, some of my wealthy clients, they've delivered a tremendous amount of value. They've gotten lots of certificates and they feel guilty and they want to give it away. Well, so I'm, my invitation to them is to be absolutely okay with the certificates of appreciation. Now, if you want to make the world a better place, but you do it from a very different place from guilt, 
That's wonderful. So I encourage everybody to say, what? how can I deliver more value to the world and collect more certificates of appreciation to take care of my family and my community? That sounds a lot like the, uh, the Zig Ziglar quote. You can have anything in life you want if you just help enough other people get what they want first. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly yeah, when you can when you can grasp that. It it really it really does it is mind blowing. <laughs> what you talk about a three chairs exercise too? Yeah, I saw that mentioned. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Sure. So what I do when. Um, Post-COVID now, I can see clients again. Uh, We used to do this just on Zoom, but it's really nice to do in person. I ask them to bring to the office as much representation of money as they possibly can. Some have brought some gold coins, some stack $100 bills. Some of them a brokerage statement, but whatever represents money for you. And we put that in one of the chairs. Then I have them sit opposite money. And then there's a third chair called the observer, the wise observer. And they talk to money. And some of them will say stuff like, money, why do you always leave me? Why do I get a little bit of you? Why are you so hard to hold on to? I really am mad at you. You don't, you know, it goes on and on. So I say, okay, uh, then let's sit in the chair and you become money. And, and I'm compressing, you know, two hours worth of work here. So, right. And then they, they snuggle in, they become money and money will say to them, should I be close to you? You resent me. You think I'm evil. You think I'm the root of all evil. You know, you, you, you try to grab onto me. I feel like a, a woman who's being uh, uh, grabbed on somewhere. You know, I just, I don't want to be around you. So I'll say, how far away would you like to be? And money will, Say, oh, I want to move my chair back 15 feet. So I move the chair back 15 feet. Do you feel comfortable there? Yeah, I don't want to be close to her. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, then, you know, yeah, the person will sit in the wise observer and I'll say, okay, what did you observe between those two? Oh, she, she's pretty pissed off at money and money doesn't want to be around her. Okay, so then we'll go through and we'll work out where did those messages come from? What is the belief system? Other people, very different. Oh, money, do I love you. Oh, my gosh. And they, they've disassociated money from the value they've delivered. They just, want, they just want to hoard and hug and love money, but they don't connect it to delivering value. And one of the things I say is money without delivering value is toxic to the soul. Hmm. Money without delivering value is toxic to the soul. Mm -hmm. Seems like there's a Bible verse kind of like that, too. You know, there might just be. (laughs) 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 Uh, Wow. So much wisdom. I tell you what. Money without delivering value is toxic. That's great. That's great. Why why do people get why do people get embarrassed about being super wealthy? Like. You talked about the the ceiling or, or the our value ceiling when we're working, you know, as it mm-hmm. relates to our career, but we often have a net worth ceiling as well. It's like, oh sure, well, if I get over that point, that's just too extravagant, and I don't I don't want to do that. Where does that come from? 
Oh, for, it's so varied. If I look at my clients, there's dozens of things that, for example, uh, one of one of my traders, he, if he made a lot of money, he had a badly handicapped younger brother. And when the younger brother came along, the younger brother was handicapped, you know, got all the attention. And he was really resentful. If he made money, his mom would come to him to support his little brother. So he solved it by just not making money. For some, can you imagine the responsibility if you were worth $100 million? Do you imagine the lives you could screw up in your life? Can you imagine the good you could do? Yeah. The responsibility for some people to say, oh, no, not for me. I'm just not going to make it. Uh, and then there's people who feel guilty. There's wealth. There's, you know, what my own story was, the, you know, the worthiness of it. Uh, we've seen, as I've mentioned, the football players who've made millions of dollars who don't have enough money to retire. They just blew it all on parties and gave it away and, you know, big shows and extravaganzas. Um, so to what once you start realizing that money that you earn is a certificate of appreciation upon the value you've delivered, all of a sudden, that money shifts dramatically in your bank account. Mm. Oh, my God. The more you have, and this is, again, some of the people listening to this, their brains are going to explode. The more you have, the more value you've delivered, the better you have contributed to the world. Hmm. It really makes you shift how you look at the service you provide too. Not only not only look at or shift how you view your bank account, the money that you have, and how you spend it, but it makes you look at how what kind of service you deliver and how you go about mm -hmm. it. Exactly. So if you say, "Well, I don't know what I could deliver of value to others," well, now we're getting down to it. Well, what kind of personality do you have? Are you, uh, are you an introvert, extrovert? Uh, what do you like doing? Now, let's figure out how we can take that. And it's not just uh, do what I love. It's finding out who I am and how I can deliver value because the satisfaction there is the deepest value. So when I'm working with clients who say, oh, I, I don't know how to deliver value, then we can start working on how they can do that. And it's amazing. Once you get creative to say, oh, my job is to deliver value, all of a sudden this whole world opens up with possibilities. Mm. Yeah, because the, the avenues that we have for delivering value are unlimited. <laughs> I mean, it, it truly is. All you have to do is is look around a little bit. And if you can't see an area to plug into, no matter, like you mentioned, no matter what your personality is, there is somewhere you can plug into and provide value. One Just of, imagine, one of the, Ken. Go ahead. Yeah, go for it. Go I was going to say one of the one of the core tenets that I talk about a lot is utilizing everything's God that God has given us: our gifts, talents, mm -hmm. abilities, our passions, our personality. Fulfillment comes when we use those things that God created us to use. And go make a difference for other people, delivering that value. Mm -hmm. So I love that you bring that out. Can you imagine, Ken, if everybody in the world took your message to heart, woke up tomorrow morning, 
wow, this is emotional for me. And said, how can I deliver value to my family, my wife, my kids, my community, my work, my employers, my employees? How can I, I mean, there's this one pie model of, of the economy that if I get more, you get less. If everyone decided to deliver value to the world, boom, there's infinite amount. Of, there's no one pie. There's Everybody hundreds of their pies. Pie. Everybody yeah. makes pie. <laughs> there's all kinds of pie. <laughs> oh, man. Peanut butter pie for me. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Let's go for the peanut butter. Okay. Does it have uh, you bet. Uh, whipped cream on top? It does. <laughs> <Say> yes. yes. <laughs> Lots of peanut butter, though. <laughs> so what what's the goal of all of this money. You know, for a lot of us, we talk about financial freedom. You know, mm-hmm. we work towards financial freedom. What is what is the end goal of financial freedom? Like what happens when we get there? And do we actually lose something when we reach that point? Like, well, that's a really good question. And you're opening up, you know, what keeps us going? What's meaning in life? Um and I believe that biologically, we need a little stress, we need a challenge, we need a big mission. You know, in uh, Viktor Frankl's book, In Search of Meaning, uh, he looked at who died in the concentration camps and who lived. And those who felt they had meaning, something to live for, something to go for, they survived just the most horrific conditions you can mm-hmm. imagine. Well, I think that one of the problems we have in our culture is my grandkids, I just got, you know, done with uh, cabin in the mountains, six grandkids, skiing, snowboarding, uh, (laughs) you know, sledding, uh, as as much food, good food as you can possibly imagine. You know, what are their challenges going to be? And is that, how is that life going to impact us when we are physically, I think, psychologically made up to solve big problems? And I don't know the answer to it, but one of my concerns is, and I don't know what's going to happen, is our culture of comfort. I have a new car with heated seats. so I, <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's great. In the, in yeah. the winter, yeah. <laughs> you know, so what's going to happen? Because, you know, I've grown up through hard times. My dad grew up during the Depression, you know, when they had just had uh, lard sandwiches for dinner. Uh, there there was some resilience and toughness there. So that's a, a good question you're asking. And so, well, can we invite people to emissions, to something that's bigger, to something that's challenging, to something that's difficult? So, um I uh, hope I'm not sexist here, but especially as men who go out into the world more or who need that challenge, uh, can is there a way we can invite them to do that, especially within their value system? I mean, that you would you would think there would be a way. And there, there has to be a way, right? There has well, human. If we don't find a way, we'll get complacent, things will fall apart, and then we'll have challenges again. <laughs> if you look at human history, you know, just there, there's waves. There's waves of plenty, and there's waves of uh, of need. So, yeah. I'm, you know, there's, maybe that won't change. Maybe we'll go into a, 
uh, some sort of reset where everyone has to get pretty gritty and down to earth. Yep. Bethany Boring in the comments says, there is a way. Yes. Bethany, uh, there is a way. <laughs> there is a way. I, I think, and and this is the best that I've come up with. And tell me if I'm wrong. You have much more life experience than I do. But it, it seems to me in observing people, because I haven't experienced it yet, but that people that reach that financial independence and then mm-hmm. have nothing left to go for, they they had the wrong goal. You know, we we all want financial independence. But when we set that as a goal and that's what we build our life towards, when we achieve it, then it's like, is this all? Now what? And it seems well, to me the people that I observe that, that go through that didn't have that bigger purpose outside mm-hmm. of what I can do for me, this financial independence. Is, am yeah. I on no, track? No, so I think what you're saying is, and correct me, that if my goal is just to make money, and I'm not, to, financial independence is really a positive thing, but if my goal is just to make money. Right. And I made a pile of money, and that was my meaning, now what? Mm-hmm. And we find some wealthy people, you know, go off into uh, different um, charities and different uh, missions. Uh, if we look at the uh, Vanderbilts and the all the uh, wealthy people back at the turn of the century, you know, they ended up doing, you know, at some point having a mission that's bigger than them. Yeah. And you have to, to, to keep pushing forward in life. No matter, no matter where you're at, what you've achieved, if you don't have a bigger mission than yourself. Yeah. And as I get older, I'm turning 76 this year and I find my mission is my, in my, my motto in the last two years has shifted to family first because I have kids and grandkids and taking care of them and doing what I can to, you know, in, in today's day and age with two working parents. <laughs> so, you know, that is my primary mission now as I start to wind down my own life. But in the last couple of years also, you know, since I've started writing the book is how could I make the world a better place? How can I, can I introduce reframes and ways of thinking about your life and about money and finances in a way that makes the world better? In the book, A Private Conversation with Money, the hero Joe starts out uh, with real antagonism towards money and ends up starting uh, charter schools for kids in the inner city. So he goes through a whole bunch of just anger about uh, capitalism, about fairness, about social justice. And then he realizes that being angry doesn't really help anything. But what if I can start just one school and change one person's life? All of a sudden, that meaning just grows and it just feels so good. It does. It feels really good. 
Richard, I really appreciate you joining me tonight for this. Is there anything you would like to leave us with? One thought, you know, if, yeah, I, I'm not sure I, that train of thought left me. Is it, what would you like to leave us with tonight? One piece of advice for someone just starting out seeking yeah. wealth, financial independence. How would you tell them to go about keeping that vision? but keeping the meaning in life. Yeah. So we're talking about people, uh, you know, every, there's this huge range of people out there and to have one specific piece of advice is really difficult, mm. but we can look at a process and the process is take time to be aware of what's going on emotionally, physically through your thoughts, forgive yourself, accept what you discover. And once you accept that, and then you can always ask now, what would I like? So can the process of awareness, my physical sensations, my emotions, my thoughts, acceptance of what I discover, and then asking now, what would I like? I have an exercise. In fact, um, I was just uh, uh, it's publication ready, and I don't know where it is in the queue. My admin ha- ha- does that. But, um, you know, they can go to the website conversations.money. There's a number of blogs there. There's a number of exercises. And I'm always happy to take a call or answer an email if somebody is stuck on something or would like, a, you know, the, an invitation to their own higher self. Awesome. So you said conversations.money is where they can find you for all of That's that. right. All right. I will have that link in the show notes. I really appreciate you joining me tonight. Ken, I really appreciate you because you asked the really tough questions. You got right down to it. <laughs> we didn't mess around up here in symptoms. <laughs> so you hey. challenged me. Good. I'm glad I could do that. This, dealing with the symptoms doesn't help. So do go right to the root of the problem. I really appreciate your time tonight. Take care, Ken.